Last week we started a series in the book of Joshua called The Promised Land. Why Joshua? Why the Promised Land? We're Joshua because I value the whole counsel of God's Word, the Bible, in Old Testament and New. They're all profitable for building us up. But the book of Joshua fulfills a particularly unique role in the Old Testament. Because as you find in the story of God's people in Israel, they were enslaved in Egypt. They were slaves. The New Testament would parallel that to someone caught up in their own sin. And it was God that led them out of their slavery into the promised land. It is Jesus and His death that gets us out of slavery and calls us into the promised land. Last week we considered a quote by Warren Worsby in his introduction to Joshua. This is what Warren Worsby writes. Too many Christians are living in between in their spiritual lives. Between Egypt and Canaan. They've been delivered from the bondage of sin, but have not by faith entered into the inheritance of rest and victory. How to enter and claim this inheritance is the theme of Joshua. What we'll lean into as we get into this book is, what is a Christian life supposed to look like? Is it, you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, He forgives your sins, and then you walk into perfect bliss? Somebody should have yelled no. There are far too many people here whose lives will testify that that is a far, far cry from the truth. In fact, when you accept Jesus Christ, when you're freed from your sin, you find the battle really starts. Joshua will paint that picture for us. Last week, I started us, I introduced us into this series And I walked us through 1 Corinthians 10. That was our New Testament introduction. 1 Corinthians 10 explains to us why the Old Testament matters to a New Testament believer. If you missed that, I might encourage you to pick up the podcast. This morning we're going to introduce Joshua from an entirely different perspective. This morning we're going to introduce it from the Old Testament. And by the Old Testament, I mean the entire Old Testament. There are times here at From this pulpit, we're going to look at a single verse and we're going to pluck it apart in its smallness. And there's times we'll look at a a chapter or look at an entire book. This morning, we are going to plow through the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. Why? Because some of us in this room didn't grow up in the church. We didn't grow up knowing the Bible. So when we come to some of these stories... We don't know the who's. We don't understand the what's or the where's, and we haven't a clue about the why's. So we tend to avoid the Old Testament because it seems like a bunch of -of out-of-touch stories that don't even have Jesus in them. So when you come to a verse like Joshua 1.1, which we'll start in next week, and you read, After the death of Moses... The servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. So if you've not been around a church much, you might have heard of Moses, but you're not sure about this land that he's talking about. 
And the mention of the nation of Israel makes you nervous. So we want to walk into this. For those that are new in the faith, those who don't know their Bibles well, to the seasoned veteran, it's going to be imperative for us as we walk into the book of Joshua that we've got some background, some understanding to know why this matters. How does it all come together? So we're going to start from the beginning, the very beginning. Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God. I've preached that three times from this pulpit. Because in the beginning, God is the basis for our worldview. In the beginning, God. He's the noun. He's the subject. And in fact, at that point of that sentence is, He's the only thing that existed. And He then created everything else. That's the basis of how a Christian looks at everything. God. He's preeminent. He is before all things. His opinion matters. He has great authority. In the beginning, God. And in the first two chapters of Genesis, you see the creation story. Where did everything else come from? And in Genesis chapter 3, you see the first deviation in the story. You have man in the Garden of Eden, walking in perfect, absolute fellowship with the Heavenly Father. Now friends, we can't paint this clearly enough for you, because people have this habit of painting pictures of a blissful life. You think walking with Jesus would be awesome, physically. Jesus tells you you're better off with the Holy Spirit. You think walking in a perfect environment with God the Father would be awesome, don't you? God says it's not good for you to be alone. You need a sense that God has you in the environment He has purposed you for. Adam is in the perfect environment with one woman and they blow it. Genesis 3, 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? It's worth noting that Satan's first act is to get us to doubt God's character. To get us to disbelieve him and to challenge the validity of his word and his promises. Verse 6 of Genesis 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she's staring at it, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And sin entered into the world. Entered into a theological discussion when I was in seminary. How long did this take? Most people speculate it was a matter of seconds. Not minutes. Not hours. Not years. When the moment you're told not to do something, you chase it. It's true of all of us. It was true for Adam and Eve. Sin entered into the world. But as soon as you see sin and you see bad news, you see the good news coming. In fact, in Genesis 3.15 is the first sign of an anticipation of the Christ. 
You see that there's going to be a resolution to the sin. Something is going to change. In verse 15, it says, the offspring, talking of a woman, shall crush the head of the serpent. So even on, there's a plan for the destroyer to be destroyed. And even in early Genesis, you begin to see a Savior forecasted. But with the apple, sin entered the world. And what we find from then on in the book of Genesis is that the pace of sin is going to pick up and pick up and pick up so that only one chapter later in chapter 4, Cain will kill Abel. And you immediately see from eating an apple you're not supposed to touch to murder, jealousy, anger, rage, strife in the human race. In our second generations as a species, we literally walked with God. We rebelled from Him completely. And the consequences for sin are immediately seen. Follow in Genesis 5. If you follow the lines of Adam and his descendants, you would read this over and over again in Genesis 5. And he died. And he died. And he died. And he died. Why? Because death is a consequence of sin, both spiritually and physically. Yet God told Adam and Eve at the end of chapter 1 to be fruitful and multiply. And so while we start to see an increase in humanity in chapter 6, we also see an increase in the wickedness and sin. So in Genesis 6, God looks down on what has been created, these people, as they continue to multiply. This is what God says in Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is God's perception of man. Not only do we act evilly, every intention of the thoughts of our hearts is only on evil. So it says then in verse 7, two verses later, God was sorry he made man. It's a strong statement. So then in the response to sin in man in Genesis 6, God initiates his wrath, which is always his response to sin. There are multiple pictures of God forecasting judgment, God bringing judgment, so that we who live in the 21st century, if we wonder if God will fulfill His word literally, will there be a literal hell? Will there be a literal judgment? God wants you to see throughout His word, yes! How do you know that? Because there's a literal flood. You see his wrath coming out in a flood in Genesis 6 through 9. God says, I'm going to start over. And even in his judgment, you see deliverance. God saves eight, Noah and his family. Why? Because the text says that Noah had found favor in the eyes of God. Genesis 6, 9 says he was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. And then in chapter 9, Noah and his descendants get off the ark. And God repeats the command to them. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's always been his plan for his people to fill the earth. Filling the earth with the knowledge of him. Filling the earth with his glory. Did they do it? No! 
In fact, in chapter 11, man says, let us come together. God tells them to fill the earth. They say, let's get together, make a city for ourselves, and let's make something of ourselves. Let's be a big deal. Genesis 11, they make a tower that reaches to the heavens. And that's the epitome of self-righteousness. It's the epitome of disobedience. They live a life in full affront to God, and they build a tower called the Tower of Babel. When he told them to scatter, they gathered. And God looks down and saw that they were about to do the same thing. So God stepped in, he intervened, which he so often does, and he confuses their languages at the Tower of Babel. So it's called the Tower of Babel. They began babbling in different languages. No one understood each other. And this event starts to scatter the nations in Genesis 11. Genesis 12, with the nations scattered, God finds and turns his attention to one man, a pagan man, a man who's probably full of idolatry, probably not far from you or me before we knew Christ, God turns his attention to one man named Abram. And Abram, who will become Abraham, will become the father of the Jewish nation. God calls this man, Abram, to leave Ur and go to a land that he will show him. Chapter 12, God gives Abram three promises. This is what it says. All of this flows right into the book of Joshua. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and I will, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's interesting to note God steps into the life of this pagan and immediately starts blessing him. It's what happens to us in Christ. But he offers him three specific promises that matter. One, he says that there's land that I will show you. That becomes the promised land. The promised land matters because God promised it. So God's going to fulfill his promise to his people. He promises this to Abram with no contingencies, with no ifs, no conditional statements. He says, I will give you this land and I will make you a great nation. I will make you the father of many and I will give you a blessing. And that's the Abrahamic covenant given in chapter 12. What we find from that is Abram moves north to a city called Haran, where his father dies. Then Abraham ends up in the land that God promised him, finally entering into the land, and Abraham becomes our first patriarch. And as you remember, Abraham was married to Sarah. And they were promised a seed. They were promised children. Do you think they were faithful and relying on God's promises? No, they weren't. They were impatient, and then through Hagar they have Ishmael, the son of not patience, that's his name, the son of the flesh. And so they wait longer for the son of promise. Then Abraham has Isaac, who becomes our second patriarch. 
And the promises that God gave to Abraham are now passed on to Isaac. The text confirms that for us. And Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob, the twins. The firstborn was Esau. He had the right to his father's blessing and his father's inheritance. And the secondborn was Jacob, the deceiver. Jacob tricks Esau and his father and becomes the next patriarch. It's fascinating if we wander all the way through this story. I want to drill in on all these little bits, but we got to keep moving fast. But have you noticed God's ability to pick the worst people in a story and go, he's mine, he's mine, that's me. I'm claiming that guy right there. Friends, if you've ever felt like you're not good enough for God, read the scriptures. He picks the worst. He picks the deceiver. It calls him a patriarch. If you've ever heard, it says in the scriptures, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's where we get this from. The line of Israel flowing through these men. Jacob, who wrestles with an angel in Genesis 32, has his name changed to Israel during that event. Jacob has 12 sons who then become the 12 tribes of Israel. And we've got to keep our mind on it. We've got to keep our thumb on this, that God made a promise to Abraham. He made a covenant with him. So he carries that promise through Isaac and then to Jacob. And then Jacob has 12 sons, the last of whom is named Joseph. We find Joseph's story picking up in Genesis 37 and running through the end of Genesis. Joseph was his dad's favorite. And he wasn't very smart about being his dad's favorite. Joseph tells his brothers, I've had a couple of dreams, and you know that dad likes me the best. And in my dreams, you're all bowing down to me. And it doesn't take too long before the brothers say, I'm sick of this guy, let's off him. When another brother sticks in and says, let's not kill him, let's sell him into slavery in Egypt. So they take his coat, soak it in blood, tell the father he's been killed, and that's what they accomplish in Genesis 37. What you find then in the last 12 to 13 chapters of Genesis is you have Joseph, one of the patriarchs, sold into slavery, living in Egypt. And this is not ideal. Because remember, the promises made to Abraham, land, seed, and blessing. Now you find the promised people living outside of the promised land because of sin because of jealousy, because of arrogance. And while the situation is not good, you see God still being faithful in the life of Joseph. If you know the life of Joseph, you know he too had his ups and downs. Joseph ends up in Potiphar's camp, Potiphar being the bodyguard of Pharaoh. Things were going well for him. He keeps advancing until Potiphar's wife makes an accusation against him that lands Potiphar in, or I'm sorry, that lands Joseph in prison. But even in a foreign land and in prison, God is faithful and Joseph continues to be faithful to God. What you find in that story is while in prison, he tells the dream of a cupbearer to Pharaoh and he tells him, when you get out of prison, remember me. Does the cupbearer remember him? No, actually he forgets. 
But eventually, Pharaoh has a dream, and no one in the entire land could interpret his dream. So the cupbearer remembers Joseph could interpret dreams. So they bring him before Pharaoh, and he interprets this dream in Genesis 41. There will be seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. And Joseph told them to get ready, and Pharaoh listens. And it proves to be true. And the nation of Egypt was ready. Not only did they have enough food for themselves, but for anyone else who had a need. And we should take note of that. That even in disobedience, God has a plan to provide for his people. How do you see that? Because the rest of the promised family is still back in the promised land. Joseph is being blessed. And Jacob and his sons are hungry. So he sends his sons, minus Benjamin, back to Egypt to get food. Joseph recognizes them. They don't recognize him. They assume he's dead. Through a series of events, they're reconciled, forgiven. And in Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph says this about the whole experience. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph says, go back and get my father and brother. And so the book of Genesis comes to a close with the first family living outside of the promised land and living with Joseph. All of that background to the promised land. So you have this sense of God's willingness to make a promise to his people. God pursuing his people even in their disobedience. God blessing his people even when they go astray. God having a plan for his people and correcting their course even when they get far off kilter. God is still at work and he's still keeping his word. There's a 400 year gap between the book of Genesis and the book of Exodus. And what you find in that gap is that the people finally are fruitful and multiply. You study the text, you'd figure out there were 72 Israelites that went into Egypt. 400 years later, there are approximately 1.8 million that come out. That's fruitful. I tried to do the math. That's a lot of fruit. Some busy mamas. It says in Exodus 1.8, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. They lived there long enough that the story of Joseph had died. And the new pharaoh looked around at the Israelites and said, These people are becoming more numerous than we are. We have to put them under hard labor. We have to oppress them. You remember they stopped even providing straws for them to make bricks. They had to work twice as hard. And the Israelites were enslaved. God's people began to cry out. Why are we here? What's happening to us? Why are we under this hardship? And God raises up a deliverer, and his name was Moses. God calls Moses. And if you remember at first, Moses said, no, not me. But eventually, Moses comes around and God placed him in front of Pharaoh to say, let my people go. Now, like everybody knows that story because of old movies, whether you've seen them or not. Let my people go and Pharaoh says, no. So God sends ten plagues to confront the Egyptian gods to prove to Pharaoh that God is who he says he is, and to give some credence to the message of Moses. God sends 
the plagues of turning the water to blood in Exodus 7, sends frogs in Exodus 8, sends gnats, gnats in Exodus 8, sends flies in Exodus 8, sends a livestock plague in Exodus 9, boils in Exodus 9, hail in Exodus 9, locusts in Exodus 10, darkness in Exodus 10, and finally the death of the firstborn in Exodus 11. God is trying hard to get his attention. Side note, if you ever feel like God is plaguing you with thing after thing after thing after thing after thing, I would encourage you to seek the obedience of your heart. God might be calling you to something else. That's what's happening here. The final plague, God sent the angel of death. Is God willing to judge? God tells Israel, this is how I want you to survive the angel of death. Take a spotless lamb. Take the blood of that lamb and paint it around your doorposts. And those of you who are covered with the blood of the lamb, when the angel of death passes through, you will be spared. And what is that a picture of? It's the gospel. It's the gospel in the Old Testament. That there is a judgment coming, but only the blood of the Lamb covering you will set you free from the penalty of your sin. Exodus 12 is a beautiful description of the gospel. And the Israelites listen and they obey. The end of Exodus 12, Pharaoh awoke in the middle of the night to a great cry. Such has never been heard in all of Egypt. Because there wasn't a house where the firstborn wasn't dead whether it's the firstborn of the Pharaoh or of the prisoner or of the livestock. So in the middle of the night, Pharaoh calls to Moses and Aaron and says, get out. And they leave. In Exodus 14, the Israelites leave and they get all the way to the Red Sea, which seems pretty insurmountable. And if the Red Sea seeming insurmountable wasn't enough, Pharaoh's army shows up behind them because Pharaoh changed his mind. Friends, it's a great reminder to us that even when you've become free from slavery, your sin will still chase you. It will still seek to enslave you. With the water in front of them, the army behind them, what do they do? They begin to cry out and wail. And in Exodus 14, the Lord says to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. God opens up the waters and the nation of Israel cross over, not on muddy soil, not on puddles, but on dry ground. We'll see that miracle replicated in the book of Joshua. There's some really crazy depth to understanding all that goes into that. Lost myself. The waters flood, and then the waters flood back over the pursuing Egyptian army. In Exodus 15, they come to the Sinai Peninsula, and they begin to worship God for saving them, for delivering them, and setting them free from captivity. It's a pretty picture. In Exodus 19 and 20, in Mount Sinai, God gives them the law. 
God has taken his people, he's delivered them out, and now he begins to desire to set them apart, to make them distinct, so that their lives would be distinct, so that their lifestyles would be distinct. This is always God's heart for his people. That is the essence of holiness. Now that's an affront to our Americanism, isn't it? Because we live in a time and a culture that suggests that the ultimate fulfillment is me being me, me getting what I want, me getting what I deserve, me getting to the fullness of me. What the Bible would declare to you is that's idolatry. The fullness of you will actually be found in Jesus. That will be the fullest you you'll ever find. So don't pursue you, don't pursue your fullness, don't pursue your greatness, pursue Him. That's God's desire, that's how we've been wired, that we would be a distinct people. And in Exodus 19 and 20, we get the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Covenant, because God's calling His people to live distinctly. In the last 15 chapters of the book of Exodus, God then describes in detailed instruction how to build the tabernacle. Because God wants to dwell with his people. Now I want you to hold on to this idea for just a minute. In God's holy word, he spends two chapters describing all of creation. How was a whale put together? Why are there trees? Why are there birds? And then in his holy word, he spends 15 chapters describing how he wants to dwell with you. How he wants to know you. How he wants to be with his people. It's a fascinating reality. God's people are at Sinai for one year, and we have three books at you find at Sinai. The last part of Exodus, the book of Leviticus, and part of the book of Numbers. And the book of Leviticus is all about holiness. It's God reminding his people, I just took you out of a pagan land of Egypt, and I'm about to put you in the pagan land of Canaan. And I want you to be holy. I want you to be distinct. Because I, your, your God, am holy. I want you to be. And then you see the book of Numbers. Because as they go into the promised land, they have to number the men, they have to number the people, they have to number the men of war, because they're going to need an organized army as they march north. God's preparing them. There's some 600,000 people in the army at this point. And in Numbers 10, they move north and they get to an important little town, Kadesh Barnea. An extraordinarily important event happens at Kadesh Barnea. They decide to send 12 spies into the promised land. This is what it says as they come back. Numbers thirteen twenty-seven, And they told them, We came to the land which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey. This is its fruit. Great news. What God has for us is amazing. It's, it's amazing. It's, it's without... It's incredible. However, verse 28... The people who dwell in the land are strong and their cities are fortified and very large. And besides that, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of Negeb. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. Friends, do you know, I say to you in the 21st century, God's called them to go here. He's prepared them to go there. He's walked them through a a sea. He's delivered them from the Egyptians. God has been so faithful, and all they see is the obstacles. 
cannot tell you how many conversations I have with people who are wanting to pursue Christ, wanting to grow deeper, and they go, oh, is that what it takes? Mm. It's a hard fight. It's a hard challenge, but God has told them to go. But they get caught up in the obstacles. They would go on to say that we look like grasshoppers compared to them, and all the people begin to grumble. Why? Because they listen to the words of man, not the promise of God. They begin to say things like, God brought us out here to die. But if you remember, that was the message of ten of the spies. Two of them, Caleb and Joshua, the very same Joshua, come back and say, let's go at once. Let's take it. These two guys, these two studs, Man, let's, let's go forward. God, God has told us we can do it. Let's be faithful. It doesn't matter the obstacles. It doesn't matter the hardship. God has promised us let's go step into that. And what you find is the majority listened to the report of the ten and they grumbled against God. And because of their disobedience, because of their grumbling, because of their rebellion, God punished them for 40 years. We started putting before you last week that God will discipline his people, even his own people. You see that even here. He disciplines them for 40 years. For every day the spies wandered around in the land, they would wander for one year And so for 40 years, they wandered in circles. God was punishing the older, unfaithful generation that did not trust him. And he was raising up the new kids to lead them. So after 40 years of wandering, and the older generation all dies off, that's what they were waiting for, on the east side of the Jordan River, ready to take the promised land, Right before they reach the promised land, you get one more book in the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy means the second giving of the law. God gave Moses the law at Sinai and now gives the old, now that the old leaders have died off, Moses looks at the new younger generation and he gives them the law again. He wants them to know about Israel's past. He wants them to know what got them into this situation. He wants them to understand where they've come from. And he wants them to understand their present condition so that they won't make the same dumb mistakes as their forefathers. And he looks into the future. Moses gives them the book of Deuteronomy on the east side of the Jordan River. And then Moses goes up on Mount Nebo in Deuteronomy 34 and dies. But before we get there, let me give you Deuteronomy 31. So Moses continued to speak these words to all of Israel. And he said to them, I'm 120 years old today. It's his birthday. We don't know what day that is. I'm no longer able to go out and come in. The Lord has said to me, you shall not go over this Jordan. The Lord, your God himself, will go over before you. He will destroy these nations before you, so that you shall dispossess them. And Joshua will go over at your head as the Lord has spoken. And the Lord will do to them as he did to Sihon and Og and the kings of the Amorites and to their land when he destroyed them. And the Lord will give them over to you. 
and you shall do to them according to the whole commandment that I have commanded you. God tells his people at the end of the book of Deuteronomy that I made a promise to Abraham and I'm going to keep it. And it's going to be hard to fulfill that promise. You're going to have to be obedient to fulfill that promise. But I'm keeping my promise and I'm calling you into the promised land. And you need to know that it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be simple and it's not going to be without a fight. Because as God's people moved out of the promised land into Egypt, new things stepped in and filled those gaps. They're going to have to go in and repossess everything God had for them. Friends, as we walk into the book of Joshua, we saw in 1 Corinthians 10 that it was given to us the whole Old Testament as an example that we would learn that we would see that God is righteous, that He's faithful, and that He is just. That we'd understand that when God says, I will do this, He will do it, both in blessing and in judgment. And as we've walked through the whole Old Testament Pentateuch, from Genesis through Deuteronomy, I've wanted you to see, weaved through that story, a meta-narrative, big seminary word, which means a continuous storyline over the top of, God's faithfulness to a people who weren't always faithful to Him. God's willingness to bless people who aren't always faithful to Him. God's willingness to identify Himself with people. And yet at the same time to take those same people and to call them to be distinct. And when they chose other things, He disciplines them. When they choose other things, He points it out to them. He wants them to be distinct so that when they walk into this new land and they live differently amongst this new people, people would see and understand the distinctiveness of God versus the reality of the world around them. He wants them to know it's going to be really, really hard to walk in to the promised land. There's warning after warning after warning. There's even a point where Moses basically tries to talk them out of going. It's a hard realm. And if you want to be a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've believed in Him for salvation, you've trusted in Him, you've been released from slavery, and He's called you into this new life, If you want to step into all of that, it's not going to be simple. And it's not going to be easy. It's not just a walk in the park. We walk in days where people almost, you hear it like this, your best life now. Brother, have you read the Bible? Honestly. You submit your life to Jesus Christ Paul talks about this, that he will put your life on displays to show how merciful God is. God wants people walking around. You want to see God's merciful is? Look at what he forgave that guy. That guy didn't deserve to be forgiven. God lifts us up. And then he'll take us through dramatic and crazy hardships. Why? So that we can be faithful. That's half the purpose of suffering in the New Testament so that we could testify to who Jesus Christ is in the midst of our hardship. 
We could say, yeah, this stinks. But there's one who's greater. There's one who's better. This tent is not my hope. Next Sunday, we'll walk into the book of Joshua. You'll be called early on to be strong and courageous. Remembering all the while that God has promised this. He's going to be faithful to do what he does. And if you want me to give you already the spoiler to the book of Joshua, here it is. The book of Joshua will call you to show up for the fight. But it'll be so evident it's God that wins the victory. The book of Joshua will put before you that God calls you to show up for the fight. But it'll be him that does the fighting. It'll be him that claims the victory. Next week we'll start in Joshua 1. I'm real giddy about it. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for your word. In your word we find truth, we find hope. Father, there are places in your word where you give us commandments, you give us um, epistolary literature, you tell us what to do, you warn us of things, you tell us who we are. And there are places in your word where you give us stories. Because you're a relational God. You want us to see examples. You want us to see illustrations. And so, Father, as we walk into the book of Joshua and we walk into the Old Testament, Father, you're going to give us all these illustrations of what you want to put before us. Father, we thank you for your word. That not only are we not alone because you've given us each other, Father, we're not alone because you've given us testimony after testimony after testimony of your goodness, your righteousness, and your faithfulness. Father, as we step into an Old Testament book, would you build up your people? Would you encourage us? Would you remind us of how great you are? Would you remind us that you keep your promises? And you would remind us that you do the fighting for us. Amen.